I was recently invited to be a guest on the entertaining and educational podcast, The Furious Curious. Hosts Charlie Quirk and Britton Rice asked me to join them and discuss the urban regeneration project that I've been working on with some partners called Back the Neighbourhood, a social impact initiative focused on the West Village in New York. You can find out more at backtheneighbourhood.com or follow us on Instagram at backtheneighbourhood. They also asked me about my own backstory and the genesis of the Impossible Network podcast and the work we do outside the podcast with Fabrica Collective. I hope you enjoy the interview and I strongly recommend listening and subscribing to The Furious Curious. Okay, on with the show. Helping build back the neighbourhood because local is vital. Today we're talking about urban regeneration. I'm Chaz, he's Brett, and this is The Furious Curious. So, Chaz, today we are talking to Mark Fallows about urban regeneration. Now, Mark is the executive creative director and co-founder of Fabrica, a New York based, New York City based global reaching full spectrum independent creative collective. Now, Fabrica, quote, takes radical responsibility for helping clients transform to resilient, sustainable businesses and meaningful, digitally powered brands. Mark is also, he's also created award-winning work for uh, campaigns and products for clients like Ikea, Microsoft, Xbox, L'Oreal, MasterCard, UPS, General Mills, just to name a few. He also hosts the Impossible Network podcast, where he explores the serendipitous stories of everyday people and how their impossible becomes possible. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Britt. Thanks, Chaz. Yeah, it's great to be on and looking forward to this conversation for a while. I've been a, an avid listener to your podcast since you kicked it off, and it's uh, thoroughly entertaining and part of my weekly listen. Oh, that's great. That's really good to hear. That makes me happy. And, and um, just for context for, yeah. for listeners, uh, Mark and I have a mutual friend, uh, an old colleague uh, who actually plugged us in together. And Mark very graciously jumped on the phone before The Furious Curious was was anything at all and, and to offer a few pointers and suggestions. And you've been very much someone we look up to in terms of how you structure your pod, the, the people you get on, just yep. the dynamic of your interviewing style. So it's a real honor to have you on finally. Well, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much for the invite. Sure. I mean, if you can just begin by sort of outlining your background and, you know, what's the genesis of the Impossible Network and how you ended up sort of leaning in or pivoting sort of to urban regeneration or less about a pivot, more adding, adding another arrow to your quiver. <laughs> or, yeah, less sleep and more hours to the work week. The background, I mean, it's pretty traditional, I suppose, advertising sort of background you know born in scotland went to university business marketing ended up in my first job in advertising through a serendipitous connection funnily enough and did that as an account man I moved down to london got a job big agencies there i started at ddb then around the time of the whole dot-com thing migrated into more of the digital side of things and moved more into the strategic planning side um sitting in a building sort of tech uh, digital teams at places like what was Euro, old now Havas, and Gray. I moved to San Francisco during the whole 2001 dot-com crash. Stayed there a couple of years working for Gray, doing, running a tech team there, working with clients like Oracle and Nokia. Then 
got into branded content before branded content was a thing. Set up my own business, failed, got hired by McCann to set up their digital content team in 2006, built that, had developers, designers, early social media people in McCann, London, won a bunch of awards for stuff we did there, then got brought to New York to try and do the same thing in New York. But by 2013, building a creative technology team here, it didn't quite meet the vision of the new management that there was a transition in 2013 and my whole team was let go. So I used that as an opportunity to set up my own business. And at the time I was doing a big project at McCann with IKEA, their augmented reality application and digital catalog. And they asked if I would consult with them. So did that and set up my business for enough called Curious NYC. But it was just me really working and doing a bit of work for them and for other clients. But it wasn't really fulfilling and then really believed that the future of advertising was beyond the way that the traditional networks work and it would be much more of a distributed network and more of a collective model and wasn't quite sure where to go with it and started to really believe that we should be building things rather than just creating communications and I played around with a couple of prototypes for a, one an app called FreeUp which was essentially a storage app a bit like Airbnb for storage but that didn't really get traction for a number of reasons and then did a soccer pitch a two versus two pitch we got Liverpool Football Club to take but the insurance uh, on it was too high so I couldn't get that off the ground couldn't raise the funding for it but then did uh, with a couple of partners Elaine who's now my business partner and also an ex-colleague from McCann in London and our head of tech in New York we set up a, a soccer chat app that integrated predictions and uh, polls and it was called Pundit Club and we raised funding for that we it really was a proper startup so we dropped everything and did that for about a year and a half two years but didn't really get product market fit and we ran out of funding as most startups do and that coincided us with myself and Elaine really sitting down and thinking well actually you know we've built something that's a really solid product and we understand how to take products to market now and Elaine comes from a background of uh, UX design and more on the sort of the tech side having worked with places like uh, RGA and Sapient and Adobe and Google and I come I suppose from the you know I'd done the from the account handling to the strategy to the creative and technology side of things. So I covered that side. So we thought, well, why don't we launch something and try and do it together? And we had a couple of ex-clients reach out to us and say they would like us to take on their development and design. So we just started and did that. And that's where Fabrica was born. And it's really just the evolved since then and continues to evolve. But to answer your question, that was a bit of a a convoluted circuitous sort of a backstory. We, through one of Elaine's connections, a woman called Vanessa Barboni Halleck, who was a banker, merchant banker, but turned startup founder, has created a startup a sustainable fashion brand called Another Tomorrow, which has had amazing press. And it's an incredible story in its own right uh, that she's really looked at the fundamental issues of the the fashion business in terms of their sustainability footprint is the second biggest polluter in the planet after oil and gas and realized that now she had to go and build a, a completely new supply chain to address some of the issues that underlie the fashion business and has done it. It's a great story. You can't really get into that with the time we've got. But she lives in the West Village in New York and she had noticed over the last two or three years, basically the pulling apart the core fabric of what she felt was the, the, the neighbourhood's, the fabric of the neighbourhood and the spirit because of rising rents, because of gentrification, because of international buyers coming in and buying up properties and then just leaving them vacant. 
the closing of mom and pop stores, closing restaurants, increasing rents and, and other underlying public policy issues and felt that she had to do something about it. So she reached out to us and said, look, guys, I want to work with you in some way. Would you be prepared to collaborate with me on creating this initiative we're calling Back the Neighbourhood? And having, obviously, we've got a ton of time on our hands. And we just said, look, uh, yeah, we want to do something that's purposeful. We've been looking to do something outside of just client work and the podcast and felt that this was something that was achievable within the fact that it's hyper-local. It's clearly very purposeful. It's, it's close to home. I used to live in the West Village. I'm now in Williamsburg. And we said, yeah, let's give it a go. And it was very much a, her sense was the neighbourhood. This, If you can create some form of model of how to create regeneration mm-hmm. that could scale across the city and across all the cities, this is something that's worth doing. And she's got a very good network. We've got a good network. So we said, well, let's just start rather than having an assumption that we know what the solution is. Right. Let's just start with listening to what people are saying. So let's start conversations to gain insights and ideas from residents, from retailers, from restaurateurs and other local stakeholders. Uh, For example, people running this there's the the mayor elections this year in june so we started speaking to people standing for council city council uh so we're speaking to them about public policy issues we're speaking to restaurateurs we've started speaking to residents and also retailers to underline under understand what the fundamental problems are and now that we're getting a, a handle on that it, the next stage, it's really starting to form partnerships. Um, it will probably involve developing some form of platform and some programs, both, uh, I suppose, online and off, to find ways to support, and particularly local restaurants. So you yeah. can't lose that core. It's core mm. to the fabric of a neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. And also the mom and pop uh, sh- shops have closed as well. We've spoken to a bunch of residents, and they can list, you name any street in the West Village, and they've closed. And we spoke to someone recently, uh, also outside of the West Village in Hell's Kitchen, and talking about how in the last nine months they've seen all their local mum and pop stores close, a lot of restaurants have closed, and what they're seeing is these shuttered spaces, graffiti, broken glass, yeah. an increasing incidence of uh, crime in the neighbourhood. Obviously, there's been a cut of the funding of the police in the city, and we'll, we won't get into that. And there's also an increase in, in drug use. They can see it all around their neighbourhoods. So you can start to see the downward spiral. So you've got to do something about it. So that's what we're starting to do. And we've had conversations with Brookfield, big developer. We've got Jacqueline Novakratz, who runs Acumen. Acumen, yeah. Yeah, so Jacqueline's involved in the conversations. She wants to help. So we're looking at ways to use these relationships and this network to take these empty spaces and bring artists back in to create artist pop-ups, to do local innovation, to bring in people with ideas who maybe can't get the funding to do pop-up stores, to look at ways to build online delivery platforms that mean that the restaurants don't have to use the Grubhubs and mm-hmm. the likes of the Uber Eats because if you understand the the margin erosion that these yeah. the fees that these organizations take, it's horrific. Now, and there's no disrespect to the amazing service that they deliver for people, but people don't want to pick up. 
So right. is there a way for us to build out something that, and given our fact we do build stuff for, with Fabrica, can we build a platform and work with other people in the city to build something to service local restaurants? And we, we had a conversation and we're going to see them again today, Tea and uh, Sympathy, which has been in the village for th- almost 30 years. It's a classic, iconic restaurant mm. and store. And, you know, they've been hammered. They're, not only are their rents going up year on year, the fact that they, any PPP they've, take, they've had, they've had to give pretty much the landlord and the landlord isn't giving them any relief. But they're, they're, they're mired in regulations and red tape because of the bureaucracy of the city. So from a public policy standpoint, that has to be addressed. And this, you speak to any restaurant, any retailer, and they all talk about the same things. So it is the, the pressure of the regulations and the red tape. It is the rents. It is the, the, la- the, the, the fact that they have to give these fees to the delivery fees to these the tech platforms mm-hmm. and they're they're all saying we're, we're close so many of them are close to giving up and 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 throwing in the towel and what does that mean that means the fabric of the neighborhood is damaged it's further eroded and everyone wants to do something about it we said well let's collaborate let's find people who want to help and use this as a model of regeneration Mm-hmm. So it will involve public policy. It will involve conversations probably with landlords. And it's certainly going to uh, involve some building some form of platform to get residents to support, to stop using Amazon, to start buying local, mm-hmm. probably through some form of local built platform. And there's already one out of Brooklyn we've discovered called Shop uh, shopin.nyc. And they're bringing that to, to Manhattan as well. So already the people could, their local stores can put their stores on this platform. Mm. These guys are brilliant. We're speaking to them. They have uh, delivery workers where they pay them $25 as a minimum wage and very much support black-owned businesses. So there's a lot of really good stuff happening in the city. So it's really just what we're trying to do with Back the Neighbourhood is bring it all together, build platforms, build and probably involve some communications at some point as well, and to really reignite the sense of belief that neighbourhoods can regenerate and as Vanessa said to us, let's re-knit that fabric of the neighbourhood. Well, that's, I mean, it's an amazing encapsulation. I mean, the the spirit of, you know, local capitalism, you know, civic duty and responsibility, you know, diversity type initiatives. It it seems like you're threading a lot of needles. I mean, one of the things that just as you were talking then really jumped out to me is this idea of, you know, the allocation of capital. Right, like mm-hmm. when people order on, on one of these uh, delivery services, oftentimes it's not probably foremost in their mind that a good chunk of that order and the delivery fees and fulfillment heads back largely to Silicon Valley and away from whatever neighborhood that is in the country. Yep. I mean, is it about the, I guess for lack of a better word, platformization of that distribution layer? Right, like the the shop. Sorry, what was it? The shop in NYC. I know I saw it on the Instagram page. Is it around coming up with a locally, I guess, locally representative alternative to to the big dogs? Yeah, I mean, that's why shouldn't there be that that option? So, there's a British guy in Hell's Kitchen as well who's set up uh, a web app just recently, and he's invited all the local restaurants on it, and people can go onto that web app and it people can go on there and they can order their food from there and have 
locally employed delivery workers delivering to them without having to pay the platform fees to the likes of the Uber Eats and the Grubhubs mm-hmm. and the Deliveroo's. So these things are beginning to emerge. Now we can take the code base of that app and we can scale it across to, we're looking at doing this for the West Village as well, but this is something you want to see appear uh, in all neighbourhoods, whether it be the East Village or whether it be Chinatown, wherever, because people don't think about it. They don't realise the 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 damaging margins. Now, it's, these services are great, and but restaurants cannot survive on delivery alone. And given that at the moment, and it's only next on the 14th that 25% indoor dining is going to open again in New York. Mm-hmm. But we do this other podcast with um, Robert Marchetti, who is a hospitality sort of Australian. Well, I listened oh, to yeah. that. I haven't yeah, read Rob- him, but I'd love to. He sounds like quite a character. Yeah, I mean, Robert uh, built uh, an amazing career in, in Australia and in Asia as a, a very successful restaurateur and has come across here and opened his, 18 months ago, opened a restaurant in Soho called Grand Tivoli and it closed and he hasn't been able to open it again because there's no outdoor space. So he's had that one shuttered and he is uh, working with Neuhaus and helping them with their regeneration of their hospitality space. But he's doing a podcast and we're producing it for him. And we met all these restaurateurs through that. And that was before Back the Neighbourhood. And that that really, through those conversations with uh, restaurateurs and also people uh, in hospitality, lawyers and realtors, you start to understand the dynamics of the industry. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the relief package that's come from the government, it's not really been focused on the restaurant industry. It's been focused on bailing out airlines and other industries. But if you lose the restaurant industry that employs over 16 million people in the right. in the US, that's that has a long term damage to the sort of the the fabric of the economy, but also the local economy. Yeah. And I know you've done your recent episodes with about mental health and resilience. You just to speak to any uh, restaurant or hospitality owner. And the damage that's been done because of COVID and because of the closures to their staff and the people that are putting themselves in at risk by coming in and working is, is massive. So it, there's an underlying problem that needs to be addressed separate from back the neighborhood. But yeah, so, you know, the restaurant business, that going back to your question about the delivery services, it, it there has to be an alternative. Now, yeah, they should be able to sort of thrive and survive and there's a role for them to play but shouldn't the restaurants shouldn't be held at ransom to having to use them because you can't expect people to just go and pick up although we are telling people in back in the neighborhood where you can go and pick up but if you can find a local alternative and build a local platform that is a non non-profit not-for-profit platform to service these restaurants why not do it sure i mean just on that like I remember reading before COVID, I think it was in the Atlantic, but there was something along the lines of this generation, Generation Z has decided that going out, going to restaurants, going to movies, going to parties is a little bit overrated in Mm. the sense that they're the on-demand generation. They can, or like, you know, back in the day when we were growing up, you had to turn on a TV and watch whatever was on, right? You didn't have the choices. These people can order, it's on demand. They can order what they want on Amazon whenever they want it. Same with Netflix, same with a range of other services on demand. Now, do we feel that some reframing has to take place in terms of the viability and and the enjoyment and, and just the overall value of going out network not necessarily necessarily networking but out in the community reframing i guess place as a vital part of society as opposed Mm. to just whatever you want to do Mm. really good observation and good question i'm not sure i'm best equipped to answer it but i'll give you my perspective on it i think 
I think one of the great things that we've seen occur with COVID is clearly there's been a a realignment of values. We've all come to value home. We've all come to value safety and security. And some of the basic fundamentals, I suppose, that sit at the foot of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And also... it's made us value what was around us before that we took for granted. So the ability to go out and sit in a restaurant. And it's been great in New York to be able to sit outside even in the freezing cold with a heater. But that was never there before. So I think what we will call physical experiences are clearly going to change in going forward. I just came off watching Hoppin's 2021 vision video mm. uh, that was on the other day. These platforms, whether it be things like Hello Summit or Hoppin or Zoom, and you see things like Clubhouse, we're seeing this increase in the adoption of online platforms for us to collaborate in virtual spaces. That isn't going to go away. But why shouldn't we, as we come out of this, as we will, and even if there's still a residual and there's still COVID around us, we we will be living in an environment where we are more safety conscious, but we will want to still commune and to collaborate and meet in in physical spaces Mm -hmm. so we have to reinvent what that means so that means reinventing what does art spaces look like what do art spaces look like what do restaurant experiences involve what do musical and you know gigs uh, involve what does it mean in terms of theater now if you look at things like punch drunk productions and what they've did with i don't know if you've ever been to new york and and done the uh mckittrick hotel Mm. And you go into these uh, spaces and you get this immersive theatrical experience. So you go to somewhere like London, you go to secret cinema where you have immersive, engaging cinema experiences. I think what we're going to start to see are a reinvention where creativity is applied to the things we did in a very linear and traditional way. So Mm. art galleries, theatre, cinema, music, everything's going to start to take on a completely sort of a new... I think it will be a a reinvention of it. I don't know what the answer to it is, but I think that will happen. And that will then tie into what you talk about, this generation's desire to have experience. And that might involve people having a virtual experience at the same time as people are having a physical experience. And there will be a dual level. And I think that's a really interesting canvas to explore. And these are some of the conversations we've been having, particularly with some restaurateurs, about how do you bring magicians, musicians, singers to a restaurant experience when people are in the establishment outdoors Mm -hmm. maybe partially indoors but people are enjoying a delivery service at home of a three-course meal that they're paying for but they're also they're going online and experiencing some form of entertainment Mm. so just imagine you're in something like hopping and you're going into a, a room with a bunch of other people from your neighborhood or other neighborhoods and you might have musicians performing for you this is all doable and we should be exploring it and that's part of the conversation we're having as well uh, with restaurateurs in the neighborhood i think that's i think that's really really interesting i you know i feel like people wanting to go out and and have a community you know over food and be you know, i just see it i see it here in san francisco when when things start to reopen there's just this influx of people who just want to go out and you know live in a public space eat in a public space be around other people of course with all the social distancing protocols in place but i totally i totally get that and i think i think that's really it satisfies a human need that i don't know if necessarily a virtual thing will a virtual thing will will augment that or supplement that but i i feel like 
there's this innate human desire, at least I've seen it here, to just want to go, even go out to dinner or just go out and just be around people. And I think that's kind of just, we'll see. It'll be really interesting to see how that kind of changes over time. Maybe it'll just go back to normal like we like we talked about. So anyway, I mean, you talked a little bit about this on your episode with uh, with Bill Dowser, I think it was. Called- oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the turning crisis into social enterprise, where he was p- taking those ply boards that that stores were using to prevent, you know, any broken windows or anything like that. During this was back in June or or, or when there were some protests happening. But just you know, he talked about using those to create these outdoor dining spaces, which I think is cool. And to me, it's just been really interesting to see despite all of the challenges that restaurants have had. You know, I've worked in restaurants. I've been a server. I've been a bartender. I used to actually book music for, for restaurants also. So I, I, I totally resonate with this using music to augment a space, to augment a dining space. But it has been really cool to see, despite the difficulties, the innovations and the perseverance of local restaurants. And, you know, I'm sure that's analogous in New York as well as here in San Francisco. But I, I just think that's, it'll it'll just be interesting to see where this goes. But at this juncture, I'm just very impressed, despite all the challenges that a lot of them have had and a lot of them have shuttered. The ones that are kind of holding it out are really doing some really interesting stuff, innovative stuff in terms of delivery, in terms of experience. And I think that's just going to continue. And I t- also resonate, Mark, about Chaz and I have worked on Google as a client, and we we hear this all the time about buying local. You know, how can restaurants not get gouged with delivery services and pickup services? So we we hear we hear this in an, in an empirical form all the time. So just resonating with that totally. There's another thing that we should mention in 2013. It was another guest we had on the Impossible Network. Is Ryan Watson gave up his job as a lawyer and set up an urban farm in Brooklyn called North Brooklyn Farm, just under the Williamsburg Bridge, where Two Trees, the development company, were going to build what's now down on the front of Williamsburg, this whole development area. They gave them a lease of this land and they built North Brooklyn Farm. And that community farm was there for six, seven years. And they grew their own vegetables there. It became a community meetup space. It was it was a place where people could go and eat on Sunday nights with locally grown food grown in the farm itself, served to them by the people working there. Up to 100 people on a Sunday night having an amazing dinner under the stars by the river and eating sustainably in a regenerative environment. And that place really, for me, set the standard as to how the future of urban development could actually occur. Now, there's not a lot of green space in New York, and they had to close, and Henry Sweets, one of the other partners in it, they're still looking at where they can, what they can do with creating another version of North Brooklyn Farm, which really, it, it improved the, the quality of life in the community. Everyone that went there, people would flock there with their kids and their dogs. It was a sense of this green space that is important, uh, not just obviously parkland in, in local communities. And people would go and buy and you, you took a membership of it and you'd every week go, we'd go along there and get our tomatoes and our broccoli and, and other vegetables. And, and it's fresh and it's not doesn't wilt after a day in the fridge. It's, it's, it's actually just straight out of the ground. Now, we had a conversation last week with Eric Botcher and his, part of his vision for the future of um, the neighbourhoods and he's looking at District 3 which spans everything from the Upper West Side down to um, Canal Street is let's look at the rooftops of New York let's turn those into urban farms 
if you look at the square metres or the yards and the footage and acres available on rooftops, if you could start to build rooftop urban farms, that would have a massive impact, not just on the regenerative nature of the city, but as he said, if you could get local schools changing their policies to only buy local food grown in the city on rooftops. Just think about how that budget, with the impact that would have on the local economy and on the health of the, the students as well. So there's people in the city with great visions like that to start to look at how do you create more resilient, regenerative neighbourhoods. And, and I think that's an, an important part of it, is to think about it creatively, about the use of space. So it's just another a facet of it. And then if you have local restaurants, instead of having to buy from outside of the city, what if you were able, for they were able to buy fresh produce from the city? And I know that people like Kimball Musk, who's Elon Musk's brother, he's doing some really interesting things as well. There's a crossover there. So there's a lot of really interesting, inspiring things going on. We just need to, I think, sort of uh, bring together the uh, almost it's almost like a coalition of change makers because there's lots of little pockets of things happening around the city and i think what we want to try and do with back neighborhood is start to connect them i I love that and just as you were talking then it just it seems it's so inspiring in terms of like that is not necessary like a necessarily a technological shift it's like because the the technology that is required to build a rooftop locally grown farm system exists right right? it's sort of an attitudinal shift and perhaps like just a mindset shift that you know i guess communities need to make in order to progress chaz well i was going to say mark it's it's kind of what i'm hearing about what really resonated with me on the on the the back the neighborhood website which was building a neighborhood network versus a social network that's kind of what you're getting at right yeah totally I mean, there's obviously there are, everyone's probably familiar with Nextdoor, which is a fantastic neighborhood social network. Now, obviously, we could you could pick holes in it, but this isn't about neighborhoods aren't built on virtual connections. And yeah, it's great to have it's wonderful to have a a notice board that's in a digital uh, and virtual space, and it has its purpose and it has its utility. But people are we're sentient beings that need. To human connection we thrive off physical connectedness so it's all about how do you bring back that and this is going back to the north brooklyn farm you know we would before north brooklyn farm we went there you you wouldn't speak to someone walking down the street you wouldn't know who your neighbors were because you're just living in a neighborhood and unless you went and walked a dog in a dog park or something most people wouldn't know who's living next door to them mm-hmm. but when you build a space, whether it be a, an urban space like North Brooklyn Farms, or whether it's a, an art collaborative art space, or some community-based centre for people to come together and commune, you lose that identity with your neighbours. And I think well, that's something that Vanessa is very is very driven by: is how do you start to create that human connection again, where you get multi generational connection, where kids meet elders of the neighbourhood. When you get to sort of meet people from different walks of life, regardless of their background. And that's what we witnessed happening with North Brooklyn Farm. And I think if you can replicate that in a neighborhood network, you start to build a better social fabric. You make it healthier. You address the isolation that's occurring in these neighborhoods, particularly under COVID. You start to bring together again a sense of shared community and responsibility for the health and well-being and resilience of the neighborhood. So it's so multi-layered. Mm-hmm. And 
we forget that we've all been isolated and, and what we have to we have to work hard to offset the damage that's been done because of COVID. Yeah. That people feel they're they're you know hiding behind their masks and yeah, and we'll probably have to continue to use them, but it shouldn't stop us starting to connect as humans with each other around entertainment around food around cultivating food and and growing and green spaces and these are things that are a part many people in the city have this vision so let's you know we just want to make it happen this the i guess the net benefit of art i mean i I live in hayes valley sort of which is right in the middle of san francisco the start of the pandemic when all the uh, restaurants and stores started shuttering up it it felt like i was living in i am legend like post-apocalyptic no one around it felt very grim then when the artists started to come in and, and beautifying a lot of these different you know sandwich boards like but basically the neighborhood at large, a different vibe started taking place and then, you know, restrictions were loosened and then they were tightened again. But I guess the importance of the beautification of the neighborhood felt like a a tangible net measurable benefit in terms of foot traffic, in terms of community, in terms of just, you know, social interaction that didn't exist before. Now, there's that famous case of, I think it was was called broken window theory. Yeah. Rudy Giuliani, you know, Mm -hmm. I know he's, controversial figure today but when he cleaned up new york there was this perception you cannot have an any sort of element of lawlessness you know it it needs to feel orderly it needs to feel beautiful it needs to be well maintained how important do you think that is in terms of just urban regeneration at large as well as making people feel like they're in a safe place where they can go out and socialize and and enjoy living in that neighborhood it's very interesting that I've only been in New York since 2010 but when I speak to people who've lived here all their lives and they talk about the character of the city when it was populated with artists and Mm -hmm. Stephen Hall is actually Scottish but he's a resident of West Beth which is one of the last artist community affordable housing residences in the West Village and he talked about what it's like what it was like then when you've got affordable housing for artists it adds to the vibrancy of a city now mm-hmm. that's different to what you're talking about when you've got artists creating the where their work adorns the the shuttered stores and sure. sh- shop fronts and restaurants but a city new york's lost over over the last 10 15 years it's lost a lot of its artists it's lost a lot of its musicians because of the co- the rent costs have spiraled and one thing we're seeing is the falling rents and the empty spaces we are seeing artists starting to return and what is amazing has been that not just the graffiti but the beautiful imaginations running riot uh, across these plyboard blocks where the artwork has just been extraordinary when we're walking down in probably june and july may june july through soho Soho, it was like walking through this, this street level art fair and it's been wonderful. So people like Bill Dowser took yep. those plywood boards and turned them into into furniture that restaurants could then use to 
uh, for their outdoor seating and then they could be sold to then raise money for for artists and homeless people. People like the, the, the guy I'm speaking to later on today at the, the, the National Arts Club, they have had exhibitions of the artists and their work, which, you know, these massive pieces are being sold off, and again, to raise money for the artists, but also to go to charity. This has had a, a massive impact on the city and I think has made people reevaluate the value of having art as a, a core part of the character and the fabric of the city. So encouraging them to come back. So it's why people like both Eric Botcher and I think one of the other council people standing, Leslie Murphy, they're encouraging the city to make a spaces, affordable housing for artists to come back from out of state, for places you know where they've gone, whether it be to Detroit or whether it be to Boston, come back to New York and start to re to recreate the the character that that was New York in the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you don't want to see a return to that sort of that broken window sort of uh, situation that the guy described to me in uh, the way that Hell's Kitchen was and returned to people in the streets and, and increased drug use and crime. Mm-hmm. But art shouldn't go hand in hand with that. Art should be a core part of the city. There should be the ability to have people living side by side in affordable housing with people that are obviously in employment, and, but not to drive them out, not to leave the city without character. And I think that's what we, we witnessed over the last five years and hopefully what we'll see a, re- a return to that, the true nature of what New York was with these artists coming back. And not just artists, musicians as well and performers of all descriptions. Yeah, that that's interesting. You know, I, I remember I would spend time in New York. My aunt used to live there. She worked in advertising, and but I would go as a little boy in the eighties when you know New York, the you know New York looked a lot different back then. But a lot of graffiti, and to some opinions, that was you know viewed negatively. I, as a as a as a little boy, I would view that and see the vibrancy of creativity and not just graffiti, but, but, you know, looking at graffiti, you know, as a, as a, as a little prairie boy from, from the Midwest, that was just a sign of vitality, actually. Depend, not, and I don't mean tagging. I mean, actual graffiti, like art, mural art, uh, obviously that's different too, but like just, just seeing creativity at work in public spaces, however you want to define that for me, you know, as a six-year-old or whatever, that was, really attractive to me and that I think that spoke optimistically in a certain way to me and I think it was my first taste of like art being this idea of despite the current circumstance there was this act of optimism so you know we same thing Mark we had a, a here in San Francisco the same thing where a lot of those boards turned were turned into art and messaging and it just totally changed almost overnight it seemed it totally changed the vibe of this shuttered and bored feeling where this 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 feeling of this austere feeling to this feeling of brute optimism through turning whatever circumstances is is in the current situation into an art form and a form of expression so i think that's really powerful if you look at some of the work that that has adorned these these empty spaces yeah and it's there's a certain activism around it there's a mm-hmm. there clearly people have a social and environmental and political message that underlines a lot of it. Yep. But it's good. It's an expression where people can, individuals can use this canvas, the city canvas, to express their feelings. And I think it, 
you just have to look at how these images are captured and shared across social media mm-hmm. in terms of its its power to give vent people's frustrations and angst about what's going on around us at the moment. And I'm obviously clearly talking about the, just the, the impact of what's happened around the Black Lives Matter movement, but also the environment and the political sort of the polarization of the society that's been happening over the last sort of few years. And I think people do want to come together. And I think to go back to the idea of being bringing, building community, you only start to build bridges when it's when people are living together and getting together. Yeah. And if, I think regardless of your political views or your leanings, when you're sharing and caring in looking after your local neighbourhood, supporting local retailers, supporting local residents, that polarisation disappears because you have yep. a sense of shared purpose. And that is a core part of what is it, why it's so important to build back neighbourhoods. Because that's, it starts one... It's interesting. The first... Oh, sorry, I don't have a tangent. The first episode of the impossible network wasn't the first interview we did but it was it was probably about our ninth it was with a guy called tyree glasgow who was a drug dealer on the streets of south philly and i went to south philly to point breeze to interview him on a very cold day in 2018 and he was shot 11 times went ended up in prison survived came out and went back to the block he used to run the corner on and said i'm going to regenerate my neighborhood but i'm going to do it not the neighbourhood. I'm going to do it one house at a time, one block at a time. And he set up Young Chances Foundation, and he's doing this actively now. So he is helping the kids avoid falling into the life of crime that he used to live mm. in this, that neighbourhood, in Point Breeze. And he said, and he talked to me then about the importance of doing it one house at a time, is finding the people that you can start to give hope to. You can start to encourage them to have a better vision for life using sport using art using music teaching them how to eat healthy all these different small micro parts are part of what he does with young chances foundation but it's that those are the building blocks of transforming people's lives so there's no one thing that is the answer it's all these things so it is why food it's why music it's why art it's why education all these are component parts of, of fixing it. They're fundamentally fixing neighbourhoods. And that's why we talk about, I mentioned multi-generational. There's all this knowledge and wisdom in neighbourhoods like the West Village and around the city that kids don't have access to. If you could bring them together in safe spaces around art, around music, in these emptied, emptied, shuttered spaces that landlords have been given there's i think let's get the right name for it it's it's an insurance cover that the city give them if they're shuttered for a year they have vacancy tax relief so they're they're encouraged to let these restaurants shut and these retailers shut because they they're they get tax relief on it so there's an incentive for them and these empty spaces are, are, are just sitting there so why not use them as a place where you can bring people together in the neighborhoods and create that community again where that and build that sharing caring culture I'll say no more about that. No, I'm quite fascinated because just, you know, using those endeavors, whether it is, you know, sport, music, they're all action oriented. And and, and also a lot of the time they are socially oriented. And when you think of, you know, one of the misnomers of social media is that it's not particularly social. 
right? You know, a lot of the times people might be sitting, you know, doom scrolling or, you know, on their bed or, you know, just, you know, commenting, getting on their soapbox. And it's not particularly, you know, in good faith. I, I don't want to generalize a lot of behavior, but, you know, we are, the, even the, the trope of the internet troll comes around as a result of this. So it's harder to be that sort of antisocial when you are looking someone someone in the eye, when you are in close proximity, you know, you can't be rude when you can get perhaps punched in the face after being mm-hmm. rude. So, so do you Especially think- in New York, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, do, do we think that like this, this reframing is going to happen all at once as a result of COVID? Or do you think there's just been a greater cultural awakening percolating for a while? And we're going to see that, you know, vis-a-vis the importance of what a neighborhood can represent going forward. At the start of COVID, there was a great summit run by Singularity University. And you can go watch. Yeah. And they ran a series of, I think it was three days of video, a video event where they brought in experts to talk about what the impact would be. Would there be a new normal? And this was right at the very start. And there were some wonderful people speaking. But there was one guy that stood out for me, a guy called James Elric. And I think he's got a residency at Stanford and he runs a non-profit, and I can't remember the name of it, but I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards. You can put it in the show notes. But he was, he was at the time looking at how do you create a regenerative, a safe, these sentient bioregenerative spaces, these urban neighborhoods, but also rural meets urban spaces mm. where we reinvent what cities are or ways that you can stop cities from going from 25 million to 50 million and create places where people can actually be self-sustaining with clean water, clean food, clean energy, with a circular waste economy. Now, his talk was brilliant. Now, he built what's called a village or operating system to do this. So it uses technology as well as ancient wisdom and combines them to create these spaces. Now, he, he admits himself, he, he grew up in Manhattan, so he knows what it's like. But this urban revitalization plan that he had he talked in that talk about places like taipei that are building buildings out of hemp crete which is like concrete but made out hemp 3d printed in these sustainable materials with farms on the roof on balconies and he painted this picture of these new economic models for cities for neighborhoods a scale now that's maybe 10 15 years off but i think if we sort of look at this in terms of the bigger picture of just the SDGs. And if you look at someone, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Ruth K- Kate Raworth and her donut her donut theory for econ- economics. Yep. Yeah, where she's built this new model for an economic model that cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen are now, in, are, they're, they're, they're experimenting with this, where you've got essentially what she's called the ecological ceiling of any environment and any economy. Now, that can be a national economy, it can be a global economy, it can be a hyper-local economy, but you also need to have what she calls the dimension, the 12 dimensions to the social foundation that has to be the base level that any environment, any neighbourhood, any economy, any community needs to be able to be sustainable. And we're falling below that base level that she talks about in society, in if I look at the neighbourhoods that we live in, clearly the homelessness, the mental health, the crime, we haven't got that base level that's required. We're also exceeding 
her what she called the ecological ceiling. We know that. We need to bring that back into check. So if we can start, if, if cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen and there's cities in the US as well starting to look at it, why can't we apply that at a local neighbourhood level and start to use it as a model to build these regenerative communities? It just takes imagination and creativity. And, you know, we've, we've all worked in, in this industry and there's plenty of people out there. And we, all, and we all know that in our industry, people talk about purpose. So why not? Why can't we galvanize the creative people in our communities of San Francisco and New York and say, let's apply our creativity, you know, across all these agencies and, and apply it with purpose, not purpose to win an award at Cannes or an award at, at the one show, but to do it to actually change people's lives for the better. It's actually creativity in service of humanity, not to get all you yeah. know, lofty, but, but it kind of is that. Do we often feel, because the, I've seen so many ideas that are tremendous over the years. Now, as it, as it results to sort of urban renewal and regeneration, I feel like many of them could feasibly work. Do we think the bottleneck is it's always political will? It's always sort of bureaucratic red tape, or do we think it's just the lack of, as, as you mentioned, imagination and, and I guess organization, perhaps. yeah, organization, you know, mobilization of it, right? What what do you feel is the biggest, I guess, roadblock to to putting these good ideas to work? I think it's it's a two way street. I think it's both. It you can't just say, oh, nothing can change until the policies change, because then you're reliant on political will yeah. and having political capital. It, it has to be a push-pull. If there's the imagination and the creativity and you bring together diverse thinkers, you bring together in, a, in an environment of play, new ideas will flourish and emerge and people will gravitate towards them, like happened with North Brooklyn Farm that then led to community groups canvassing the city to create a space for this to continue and go forward that hopefully will come to life again soon. Mm -hmm. That creates the political pressure to change policy. But at the same time, you need visionaries in political office to drive forward change that realise that we can't, we don't have a sustainable model. You can't continue to have city. You can't go back to a new normal the way that New York was before. We don't want to. I don't think anyone wants to just see these these ridiculously inflated rents and taxes that drive people out and only the super wealthy because then you lose the character of the city. So that's why you need diversity in a city and the character for just even to have restaurants to then feed those super wealthy people so that are there. Are. So I think it is both. I think it is it's push and pull. I think we need to engage the creatives, the visionaries, the artists to work together to create a better city to live in because we all live here let's face it i mean everyone that works in whether it be ag your agencies in san francisco whether it be agencies here in new york or whether you be design agencies or creative agencies we all want to live in a better environment and we all want to have be entertained whether it be in a semi-virtual or engaging experiences for theater cinema art music so it's our. That's why I say it's a. It's a. We all have a shared responsibility to be part of this, and I. And no one's going to do it. We. We don't think we're going to solve this alone. This is. This is only going to come from diversity of thought and building community. What we're calling common unity, in the in building back uh, a sustainable, resilient neighbourhood, and city. 
common unity that's a great that's great I love that. I mean, just to just to pivot a little bit in terms of the impossible network. I mean, can you speak yeah. just because when you were talking about that mindset, this sort of like a, I guess, a, a red thread of idealism and entrepreneurialism and optimism permeates all the guests that you have on. I mean, how, I know you mentioned just before we got on the call about the serendipitous nature of that. But why do you think like you, you consistently get these same attributes in these people who you interview, no matter, I guess, what field they're in. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, as I say, I, I started it because I believed in the power of serendipity is a core. I mean, we are, we're all in the creative fields. I always believed that there are certain components to, to invention and innovation and I don't think it comes through linear thinking. It comes through lateral thinking. And that usually comes about because of collaboration and collision of random thoughts. Mm. And collision of random thoughts have to can be engineered. And I think it's, it's usually serendipity. And it only happens when you take the road less traveled, where you confront fears, you're embrace the risk of failure you're prepared you're curious you as you say you go down that road less travel and only when you do that do you encounter people experiences or find yourself in places you wouldn't otherwise find yourself and that's when these collisions happen now that can be applied on an individual basis and i think we've all can all most people can recount serendipitous moments in their lives but living a safe controlled secure risk-free life doesn't lead to serendipity and therefore it doesn't lead to these unusual collisions and serendipity and that's what I set out to try and explore because I've always been fascinated by it and I started out interviewing three people that Blaine and I knew two of them were clients and one one was a friend and we just said look we want to ask you these questions and serendipity is a red thread that runs through it but we'll ask you who we interview next and see where it goes and it's been the most extraordinary experience of meeting just the most diverse, surprising individuals. And we built, and it's, it's funny, we called it the Impossible Network, not intentionally to think of, that we would be building an impossible network of connections. <laughs> we literally now have almost 100 people in our network that have pretty much everyone said yes, bar maybe a couple. Everyone from, as I mentioned, Tyreek Glasgow, the drug dealer who turned philanthropist, to Chantel Martin, British-born New York-based artist, to Sharon Feldstein, Jonah Hill's mum, Christina Himerez, who was behind the Dreamers program, Emily Oberman, a partner at uh, Pentagram, Jose Freire, amazing story, from and founder of Team Gallery uh, in New York. Merritt Moore, ballerina, quantum physicist, our sister, Skylar Moore, who's the youngest head of defense board of innovation at the Pentagon. All these people are absolutely incredible. They've all been generous to of spirit to recommend someone else. And it's all been, it, it does create this, this spider's web of random connections and what we do is we then connect them together so we're connecting people that we think would benefit through a connection and then see where that goes and hope that something good comes of it so i think the underlying the podcast is this optimism and belief in the power of serendipity and the power that when you bring these people together you start to 
add value to society. I mean, there's a great book called New Power that Henry Timms wrote it. But in New Power, they talk about how TED is ideas worth spreading. But really, we're a little in a world where problems need solving. Yeah. Mm. And you only solve these big societal problems when you bring together people with random connections of experience mm-hmm. to create spaces where you can share ideas, not just, and this is where diversity is important. Yeah. Uh, it's from that that these random collisions of ideas and thinking where big problems are solved. And there's a wonderful series by James Burke for the BBC going back to the 1970s and 80s where he looked at how the big inventions of our t- of our ages happened and he charted all of them together through the random connections and the serendipitous encounters that led to these inventions. And, you know, we all talk in our industry, certainly in advertising and creativity, about how things like the Post-it was created and serendipitous. So why can't we engineer these things? So as the podcast has progressed increasingly have become interested in how we can leverage these guests own individual purpose and focus and skills and imagination and creativity to come together and create new networks to maybe solve problems how we manage to get the the quality of the guests we get i'm I'm not quite sure but they just they certainly do share underlying these characteristics of and these values I, I love that. And, and just even this, uh, you, would you say, you, you had a quote earlier, collisions of modern thoughts can be engineered. And it just gets to the essence of creativity as a recombination of existing ideas. You know, like if you look at why a series like Harry Potter exists and why it has is the biggest selling series of all time or a um, cinematic universe like Star Wars, it's because they borrow from existing ideas existing content and recombine them so there's a degree of familiarity but at the same time it feels fresh and novel and real so i feel like that's a lot of that that the engineering is the sweet spot because Mm -hmm. like if you look at ted you know ideas we're spreading and that's fine but a lot of it it is very and brit you and i've talked about this it's i'm not not putting words in your mouth but just this, this is me saying this it is quite preachy we are kind of revering a Jobsian, when I say Jobsian, Steve Jobs-like character, oh, we are here to sit at the feet of this person and drink up their wisdom. And that's fine. But he doesn't, the next step of mobilizing and engineering the opportunity out of that, Mm -hmm. it it seems to evaporate into the ether a little bit. What I feel like you're doing with Back the Neighborhood, Mark, is you are that red thread. You are that layer of, you're the apparatus of, of action. And again, not to try and reframe who you are, but it feels like that's what you're doing with an initiative like Back the Neighborhood, initiative like the Impossible Network, that a lot of these other endeavors do not do. So certain, not to pump up your tires, but uh, I'm always willing to do that with su- to someone with such a lovely accent. <laughs> well, I don't, think, I don't think it's uncommon, to be honest. I think a lot of people are doing it. It's just, it's under the radar. I mean, if you go back to Malcolm, was it Malcolm Gladwell's book, one of his original ones? The Tipping Point? Tipping Point? Yeah, The Tipping Point, where he talked about connectors and mavens. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, if I don't think I've got any particular talent other than a certain tenacity and a bit of a Protestant hard work ethic that was drilled into me by my mum. But I do think, because I'm a curious person as well, I, I like connecting people. I, I see the power that if when you do bring people together 
And if you're in a position where you are in a city like New York and you come from another country and you just happen to have a network, you go, well, you've got a responsibility, mm -hmm. I think, to connect people. Because uh, I think we underestimate the power of creating connections and the value in it. You know, we all look at these... And to go back to your point about, and it, is, it was a good point, and we didn't really get into it, about social networks. And I can't remember the guy that talked about filter bubbles in the first instance way back in 2008, 2009. But what we've seen since the emergence of social media are these filter bubbles have, have led us to this society yeah. that we live in today and QAnon and these identity politics and the polarization of societies and communities and nations and the existential risk we're facing because of it. So we have to go back to our core humanity and what I suppose binds us together. And as I say, we have got these big existential problems that need solving. And it's only going to be a result of, of people coming together in around our core humanity to solve them and that's so that if back then it can be a tiny wee step to tilting us in the right direction then great I'm just doing my, my part and all thanks to uh, Vanessa for inviting myself and Elaine and I should say Jenna who's a brilliant young student about who's going to was going to Stanford but couldn't because of COVID is helping out as our intern on it and all these people that are stepping forward and having conversations with us so yeah it's <laughs> Thank you for your uh, your pumping up the tires, but it's you, uh, it's really just doing what I can to try and help where I can. That's great. What really resonates with me is there's a red thread, like you said, uh, for the Impossible Network, but it's really you know, and you talked about diversity, but it's beyond what we maybe quickly define as diversity, but beyond that, diversity of experience, diversity of point of view, diversity of thought. And it's important that we bring different people with different experiences, different points of view, different ideas, different thought processes even together. And that, that's what I'm hearing here. And I think that's, that's really important, especially when I think what social media has done and has pushed us apart in those ways and has siloed us and saying, well, the way, that, the way people are thinking about that is wrong or the way people are doing this is wrong. I think once we break that and we get back to a neighborhood network, I'll go back to that term that was that, that we were talking about before, that all breaks apart. And then people can have that have those conversations with somebody who's who's much older than them or or experience life with somebody who's whose background is very different than theirs. And I think getting back to that I think is more important than ever. And I think that rolls right into what this back the neighborhood is really about on a on a human level. Yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, and I hope that's what we're we're doing. I think the big, bigger challenge we all have is how do we start to address, bring that diversity of, as you say, of experience, of thought, of background, of age, wisdom, knowledge, and etc. into an online environment to right. solve these big problems. That's the that's the next challenge. So yeah, Mark, you know, just some just some parting thoughts. How how can people join or participate or contribute to in any which way back the neighborhood how, how can people engage well they can go to back com and they can sign up there if they're in the neighborhood or they're in the city fill in their questionnaire we've got there uh, they can just join 
what we call enjoying the movement uh, send us a message or they could start to follow us on our very new instagram account that we've only got 65 followers on at the moment but we yeah. we, do, we do literally just kicked that off but yeah follow us and and share ideas yeah, yeah. We're, we're the thing is we we don't have the answers but the answers are out there so if anyone's got any thoughts or models or suggestions reach out to us we'd love to hear it and obviously yeah listen to the impossible network or the raw hospitality show or other show and if anyone you know wants and to talk to us about anything else to do with what we do in our day job with fabrica yeah it's fabricacollective.com cool and then it's what's the url for impossible network just the impossible network.com great that's great and that's basically on i just for everybody it's on it's basically on all the main platforms yeah yeah so all the old podcast platforms yeah we'll make sure we put all those all those links uh, in the show notes also I'll, I'll plug this too and i just thought it was really cool you know when you were talking with bill dowser this reply.org i'm just curious is that is that what's the status of that i know you had that conversation i think it was back in may or in the spring or summer yeah what's the, what's yeah, the current he's... status of that i'm curious yeah well, the the, the re- most recent build they did was a Noy House, which is the creative co-working space that we work out of, just off Madison Square. They created what's called the Long House, which was an outdoor space. And until the restaurants closed again, uh, that outdoor space was built by Bill with the Replied.org team. So they're still doing it. And yeah, I can certainly connect you with Bill if you want and have a chat with him. He's a interesting, a fascinating character. So yeah, they built the long house at Neuhaus. Yeah, I haven't caught up with them for a while, but I'm sure they've got a, an equally sort of a purpose-driven agenda with that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so that's, I think, reply.org. Or, yes. What I have in my notes here. R-E-P-L-Y.org. Yeah. So we'll, we'll include that in the show notes too. Yeah, connect us with him. I'd lo- we'd love to have a conversation with him too. So that's great. Well, I, I'm going to leave with this really quick, Mark. There was a Harvey Milk quote on, I think it was on the Back the Neighborhood website. That's right, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's he's San Francisco's own, you know, the late, great Harvey Milk, RIP. You know, he was an icon of the San Francisco. He was a board of San Francisco Board of Supervisors and quote the mayor of Castro Street. And I just loved this quote because I think it just summarizes everything that we just talked about is if we wish, wish to rebuild our cities, we must first rebuild our neighborhoods, end quote. And I think bang on starts. And that's, that's really great. Well, Mark, I really, we really, really appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk to us, to share everything. This was incredible. And just, I re- we really appreciate the great conversation. I think this is really enriching for a lot of people. Cool. Well, anytime. And I, I certainly appreciate uh, the invite to uh, pontificate about this and, sure. and spread the message. So yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, keep up the good work. We're, um, uh, I've, I've been sharing your podcast with a lot of my community and I will continue to do so because I think what you're doing is really important as well and very educational and very entertaining. Ah, that's that's the sweet spot. That's what we're going for. Yeah, and if you have any, anybody in your network or you have any ideas of of other things we can cover, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, we're we're always open to doing this. And I think mm-hmm. for us, it's been really great to kind of force us to just pay attention to things on a deeper level on a regular basis. That's kind of been the kind of the incidental benefit of all this. So it's been it's been really a, a joy to work uh, mm-hmm. with Chaz on this, and it actually well, just arose from conversations that him and I would have at the at when we we worked at two agencies together basically over lunch this is basically what how he would talk about stuff so it was it was really pretty organic in that way 
Well, if you want to have a good conversation, I'd recommend you do speak to Vanessa okay. and he- hear her story firsthand about sustainability and fashion, because that, aside from Back in the Neighbourhood, what she's doing there is incredibly important because mm. she's leading the fashion industry in the right direction. Yeah. And I don't think uh, enough people are aware of the, the damaging impact of the clothes that we buy and, and wear and don't yeah. recycle. So she's an incre- incredible person. So I think it'd be a good person to speak to. And if you wanted to speak to any other people in the, in the mental health space, Courtney Renicky, who we interviewed as well, is a, a very interesting person doing some great work also beyond just mental health with her mental health practice, but around diversity. So she's a very interesting person. So, yeah, anyone you want us to connect from right. our network, we're more than happy. There's plenty. There's a lot of interesting stories out there. Yeah, no, I will definitely follow up with you on those. You know, the the, the clothing thing is really interesting. It, it It is true, and it is kind of a baffling revelation of how how unsustainable the fashion industry and its model has. You know, I was even thinking about, like, even just the amount of water it takes yeah, exactly. to create new clothes and all that was just pretty baffling to me. And, you know, you're starting to see... You know, I, I do subscribe to GQ among many magazines because I got a deal on it and it just it gives me a perspective. And even GQ, which is essentially built on a fast fashion uh, model, which is highly unsustainable, is even starting to try to have those discussions and even fat, you know, fashion uh, companies or clothing companies, retailers are starting to have that conversation. You know, hopefully it's not a duplicitous one. Hopefully it's a real one. But you know, I think we're starting to see an emergence of that con- of that consciousness, and that's natural because you know we talk about sustainability in so many other ways. Now we need to attack the <laughs> the bear, which is like clothing and and how clothing has really not been a sustainable model up to this point. And hopefully that that ship is going to turn around. Yeah. For sure. Well, it has to. It has to, right. Yeah. For Yes. So you're listening to The Furious Curious, hosted and produced by me, Britton Rice, and my esteemed colleague here, Charlie Quark from San Francisco, California. Uh, make sure you subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. That includes Apple and Spotify and many, many, many others. Uh, and also make sure you follow us on Instagram at the underscore furious underscore curious and on Twitter at the FRS CRS. We welcome your comments, your insults, your constructive feedback, uh, your compliments, of course, on our general good looks if you have the kind words to say. Until next week, stay curious. We're out. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.